0: Welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. This is a program, as we reiterate each week, on Carmelite spirituality. And the focus, obviously, continuously is on how we live the contemplative encounter with the living God in our daily lives, regardless of the circumstances of our daily lives. And perhaps that message is no more important to us uh, than it is now in the season of Lent, um, which we are currently in. Uh, and on this particular day that we're broadcasting uh we are celebrating the feast of the chair of St Peter a very special day for the church we're going to talk about that just briefly but before we do let me say hello to my co-host in studio Francis Harry Francis how are you today
1: oh i'm feeling very grace filled blessed uh this lenten season and it is a special day in the church um and i belong to a parish that is called saint Peter, so So we were particularly
0: special for you today that's great yes
1: we had a triple blessing at the end of mass daily mass today and in fact i've picked our opening prayer um from the morning prayer of the office which celebrates the chair of saint peter this chair that is like the mercy seat the the rock peter that has um been designated to be our authority on on earth um So, uh, let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All-powerful Father, you have built your church on the rock of St. Peter's confession of faith. May nothing divide or weaken our unity in faith and love. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Well,
0: thank you, Francis. I appreciate that. Um, we, as I say, are continuing uh, our Lenten journey with the use of a book by Father Donald Haggerty uh, entitled Contemplative Provocations. It is a wonderful book. I'm not going to hesitate, Francis, to advocate to our listeners that they uh, look to secure themselves a copy of this. Right. Obviously, Ditto. we're covering <laughs> uh, it. Um, You know, chapter by chapter, but not in the detail that we would. Uh, like to be able to do, uh, or that uh, would sufficiently, I think, dry out all of what Father Haggerty has to offer us here and again, because this is Carmelite uh, spirituality conversations, uh, we reemphasize the centrality of St. John of the Cross, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, and I would argue St. Therese of Lisieux, who are well represented throughout this text, and so it should make us as Carmelites, or those interested in Carmelite spirituality, feel very encouraged to uh, to, to uh, pick up a copy of this book. In fact, you can relate uh, some feedback that you received from one of our listeners, also a member of our community. I got similar feedback, but why don't right. you share that?
1: There was one person who shared that this book in particular helped her in a very transformative way um, in her prayer life, and her family life, and, um, you know, just gave her some insight, just put it in a little nugget that just exploded in her heart, so to speak, and really um, helped put things in perspective in a way that she hadn't uh, seen before, and so she credits uh, Father Haggerty through his writing, um, in just this one little section um, that did that.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, interesting that, you know, we've covered a lot in this series of conversations. I think we're in our fifth one now, Francis, on this uh, relatively small text, but nonetheless a very rich text. And it is uh, interesting how much of the landscape of our experience in contemplative prayer. I think we should reiterate, this is a book about contemplative prayer. It's not about vocal prayer. He doesn't go into much on method as regards meditation, uh, certainly doesn't discuss Alexio or anything of that nature. This is about contemplative prayer. And, as and
1: contemplative life, I would and, say. And
0: contemplative life. That's a very important point Francis raised in our uh, independent conversation after uh, the last broadcast that we want to make sure to bring out. I'm going to let you do that, Francis, because you explained it very well. We have said a uh, prayer is not an activity. It is a way of being. And in contemplative prayer, we talk about exactly that. You want to describe that a little bit, the contemplative life?
1: Yeah, the contemplative life is that, of course, we have those uh, great moments of silence, of prayer, uh, those special one-on-one intimate times with the Lord. But then we try to practice the presence of the Lord throughout the day, recalling our conversation with him and looking to him and uh knowing that he is gazing on us and we need to be gazing on him um but all the fruits from the prayer spill off into the little ordinary details of our life with conversations with somebody who is in need or when we're all of a sudden exasperated or confused or wanting some help you know these um big periods of prayer within our life carry over to the little periods um, from moment to moment so that we live a life of prayer um, because this contemplative heart is always yearning for god it's always hungry for god and is always wanting to uh imitate jesus more more thoroughly and so you know we seek the blessed mother and all the holy angels and saints to aid us in that capacity and we know our poverty and yet you know god draws us ever deeper we thank him for that um but it is not just uh praying every day but it is living a an attitude of prayer that is ongoing
0: Well, that actually segues well into the uh, section that we concluded with in our conversation last week, and we didn't quite get through that section, but it was very important, so we want to pick up there. And this is the um, uh, chapter, the section within the book entitled, the poor. And if you'll listen to last week's conversation, you'll note how we discussed Father Haggerty presents this compelling argument about how Jesus is hidden in and among the poor. And of course, Francis pointed out even in our conversation last week, the poor, by the poor, we don't mean just abject poverty, that which we might witness on the streets or uh, uh, those who have fallen into different uh, difficult material circumstances. But those who are poor uh spiritually, in other words, who who don't have a deep uh, an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, who who live in fear and doubt and anxiety, who may be um, slaves to materialism, who may be slaves to uh, some uh, passion that they can't overcome. These are the poor also, and we can find Christ hidden in them, and we can uh, express our compassion, our mercy, which we're going to be talking about in the following weeks, uh, towards them. But Father Haggerty uses this wonderful analogy of the artist, uh, and he talks about a painting actually and how a gifted artist, even an active artist, can see certain things in a painting that the lay person, someone who isn't actively a painting uh, as an expression of artistic uh, uh, development uh, would not necessarily see the difficulty in the in the, uh, brush strokes and um, how colors are combined and so forth. And Francis, you walked us through a similar analogy to music. Right. How a musician hears things at a level that the average person wouldn't necessarily because they don't spend time in that experience.
1: And I think that relates to just about anything that somebody is an expert at. There, there are minute details that An expert knows that the regular person is not aware of.
0: They appreciate the difficulties and they see things. This is the analogy. They see things or hear things that uh, the average person wouldn't. Well, I'd like to take this analogy one step further and suggest that the person of prayer, most especially contemplative prayer is an artist. Prayer is an artistic expression on one level. It truly is. Uh, and therefore, in continual practice of contemplative prayer, we are better able to discover Christ hidden in the guise of the poor, specifically because individuals who practice contemplative prayer have spent time practicing the art of seeking Jesus Christ where he is hidden. And what do I mean by that? Well, I would encourage you to go back to the second conversation on our series about this, where we talked about the hiddenness of Christ and actually transitioned into the third as well. But Christ does hide himself in prayer. It's almost like a game, you know, Teresa of Avila, St. Teresa of Avila talks about this, this, this game that we play with Christ on occasion where we, um, struggle at times to find him much like the brilliance hidden in the portrait or the painting the practitioner of contemplative prayer is able to see jesus in everyday life hidden yes among the poor also among those who are poor uh, spiritually because they have spent time seeking him
1: well there is also a caution here um we remember that if Christ associate himself with the poor, that he reiterates that the poor will always be with us and that we must not fall into the trap of using the poor as merely a means to our sanctification. I can see where that could happen. You're like, okay, well, I want to be a saint, so I'll just go work with the poor. And, and you know, you're just totally missing the the whole purpose here. So this means that we must not just attend to them as an object in need of our consideration, but actually Find Christ within them. That is the thing. In fact, I, I would challenge us that we should do that for every person that we encounter. Uh, as I do, as I look at you, Mark, and as our <laughs> listeners, I, I know Christ is in them, too. So, um, And then, you know, we must do what we do for the love of Christ. And so as we serve others and become other-oriented, it's because we are serving Christ in them. So this is both a benefit and and an opportunity for us to grow in love. And, you know, I know there's something to be said here about the political philosophy that suggests we can, by our own efforts and policies, eliminate poverty in the world. And and I know, you know, sometimes that is this the vision. um, And yet Christ says we'll always have the poor with us. So there, there is a benefit to us having the poor that we can't obtain in any other way, I believe.
0: Yeah, we have to remember that hiddenness... Christ's hiddenness doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. It means that we have to find him, and we can find him in those uh, individuals in our society who he said in Scripture will always be with us. And, and Francis's reference to this political philosophy that is out there that uh, somehow it is the objective of mankind to in all cases eliminate the poor. Certainly we want to minimize the struggle and the trial that so many endure in our world, uh, but the suggestion that somehow man of his own effort, will eradicate poverty, will eradicate uh, the existence of uh, of the poor among us, uh, simply is inconsistent with Scripture. And as she rightly points out, Francis rightly points out, there is an opportunity here. Our sanctification rests in our participation in seeking Christ in the poor. This is very consistent with the message of the Holy Father today. We must seek Christ in and among the poor. And again, I would reiterate, poor can't uh, just mean those who suffer material poverty, but also spiritual poverty, those who don't have Christ. We are called to serve them, and in doing so, we not only work to um, bring a more just society to our world, though we know we will never make it perfect, but we also bring about our own sanctification. And again, the caution, as Francis raised, not to do this as an object, not to make the poor an object, but as a means of sanctification. We need the poor in our lives to remind us of the hiddenness of Christ and to remind us that our call is to be sanctified.
1: And that leads us to a quote the Father Haggerty had uh, that closed his chapter about the poor, I think is a very uh, fine um, synopsis here. So I'm going to read it here. The hidden presence of Jesus in the poor invokes a need to conceal ourselves also from our own eyes. This is a necessity for greater love to disappear inside our actions, unconcerned for self. That's a key trait of a contemplative soul. (laughs) More intense love in actions demands this spirit of hiddenness. We have an impetus to hiddenness in every encounter with the poor. The concealment of our Lord in the poor draws a desire to forget ourselves when we are with the poor. It is a mysterious gift that accompanies being with the poor. We lose thought of self with the poor because the suffering of the poor overcomes thought of self. It is our Lord actually, who is drawing us away from self. That's something really to ponder, it's isn't it? It's very
0: profound. The corollary benefit here um, d- to the existence of Christ in the poor is it is the means. I said a moment ago that they are, for us, a, a means of sanctification. And it is for that very reason— in the poorest of the poor, we can lose ourselves. We can sort of get over ourselves already in the more modern vernacular and recognize that, um, there are so many out there that are in such great need of this gift of the gospel, of the gift of message of, of Jesus Christ, of the gift of prayer and contemplation. And we can sort of come out of ourselves, as Elizabeth of the Trinity would describe it, um, and, and, focus our effort, our compassion, our kindness, our gentleness on someone else and and let that someone else be for us, Christ, while at the same time recognizing um, that we are in fact serving Christ in that person.
1: And of course, Mother Teresa of Calcutta is an excellent Um, example of a hidden soul, a very contemplative woman who hid from herself as she looked for Christ in the poor.
0: Yeah, and I will say something that may sound radical, and I hope people listen carefully before they become upset, but... God forbid that we should eradicate poverty or the existence of the poor among us, because then there would be less opportunity for holiness. Now, what do I mean by that? Oh, again, Francis's point, don't make the poor the object of our sanctification. Don't say, oh, I have to go serve the poor. No, it is genuinely a means of sanctification because it allows us to come out of ourselves to focus on Christ, to realize that we are here for a deeper purpose than our own sanctification, than just that, Um, but... Uh, I pray that we won't experience the day, and I know, in fact, we won't. Uh, Christ said himself, the poor will always be with you. It will be true because they are the means for our sanctification. You know, so many people say, why does God allow these tragedies that we see across the globe, weather phenomena, military uh, excursions, all the rest of it, economic collapse? Um, It is, in part, uh, a consequence of sin. That's absolutely true. But it is also a call to all of us to seek Christ where he may be found, hidden among us, hidden in the poor.
1: Well said, Mark.
0: The contemplatives uh, is the next uh, section that uh, father uh, Hagerty, delves into, and it's a wonderful transition because part of our response to the reality of the existence of the poor among us is our call to prayer. You know, there's little that many of us can do, Francis, for those who uh, may be suffering in the Middle East today. We certainly can write a check and and uh, perhaps uh, participate in some agency that distributes um, uh, benefit to them in, in, in material ways or otherwise. Uh, but really, in fairness, directly, there's very little that most of us can do to impact that. There's very little most of us can do to eradicate the the poverty that we see in Asia or to address Uh, the absence of the existence of the message of the gospel in so many parts of the world. But there is one thing we can all do, and that's pray.
1: And sacrifice.
0: And sacrifice. I'm I'm
1: thinking of Therese saying prayer and sacrifice are my invincible weapons.
0: (laughs) We're going to hear more about this idea of sacrifice and and even suffering and trial. We did, of course, early on in this very book. We talked about accepting our sacrifices. They're inevitable in every life, accepting them as a form of prayer um, and for relieving... Uh, the suffering in the world. I was fascinated by an article that I read about uh, Jacinta this past week. Of course, we celebrated Jacinta
1: of Fatima, right?
0: Exactly right. Jacinta of Fatima, whose whose feast we celebrated um, this past week and uh, her and of course her um, brother Francisco were called out of this world at a very early age and it was made clear that they were victim souls they were truly Mm -hmm. victim souls and we should not mistake by the way the fact that they uh, left this world at a young age they suffered immensely before they left not just the political trials that they underwent, the fact that they were not believed by so many, uh, even their own family members but they had physical uh, uh, struggles as well. This idea of, of victimization and use of our suffering, uh, to relieve the suffering in the world, is very consistent with our contemplative experience. And it goes to this particular section of the book where Father Haggerty wants to talk about uh, Contemplatives, and he wants to define it. You found the part, the section on the poor uh, most uplifting for you spiritually. I found this most uplifting okay. <laughs> uh, because, to be honest with you, as I read through the various sections, I could say to myself, "Yes, I see now why I am that way. Yes, I understand my my uh, predisposition to certain characteristic traits uh, that I think are consistent with the contemplative call."
1: So, in this section, uh, Father Haggerty reflects on some of the key personality traits or signs. Of of souls that are called to contemplation. The central theme of the section is that just as Christ is hidden in the poor, we contemplatives remain hidden in the ordinariness of our daily lives. And I'm thinking of Therese of Lisieux, of course, the uh, right. finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. Not
0: known until after her death, Right? Really. right. Not, not, not fully appreciated.
1: So, you know, we are truly contemplatives who live in the world, especially as seculars, um, the Secular Order of Discast, Carmelite's Third Orders. Um, and we are also especially called thereby to transform our world through the power of grace working in and through our interior lives in the midst of our everyday lives.
0: You know, and I, I continually go back to this, Francis. You and I have had this conversation many times. What a gift to be members of Carmel. Can you yes. imagine? I mean, I know I've related the story. I'm not going to go through it again, uh, that I was called to Carmel. There's no doubt in my mind that you were called to Carmel as both a, a contemplative and, and as a leader in the community. Uh, But what a gift we have in Carmel, and I can only uh, use uh, a few seconds here to encourage those of you who may feel that call and are not yet members of a community uh, to potentially seek that out. Um, But I was particularly taken by this um, idea of hiddenness, how we, like Christ, are hidden in and among the world, uh, and yet we have an active apostolic A mission in that world. I like that because, as I have said to you many times, I'm the classic non-joiner. I don't (laughs) want to be part of any group. Uh, The only group I've ever signed on to are the United States military and Carmel.
1: But but Mark, you're like the little mustard seed and you just blossom and uh, you influence so many souls. And of course, I know here on Radio Maria with Carmelite Conversations, we have an opportunity to share so much of what we've been given. And we were, were just, you know, thanking the Lord that we have this opportunity to pass along all these wonderful fruits. So, you know, there is a confirmation we can have about our call to Carmel. It is not unmistakable, but is quite consistently found in souls who hear the call to Carmel. And it is what Father Haggerty so beautifully put. He says... The practical consequence is to disappear in some form of hiddenness with God. That's what you were just referring mm-hmm. to there, Mark. And it also, he says, intense love for a God who conceals himself provokes a longing for a life obscurely alone with him. Like yeah, it,
0: it, it is so true. And again, from my own experience, I suspect, Francis, you would share similarly from yours that as we go further and further into Carmel, it isn't as though we want to project ourselves and that we want, you know, this is a trial, I think, for both of us yeah. on some level uh, to come into the studio every week. We love the conversation, but Francis and I would have these conversations for years before we ever brought this into the studio. This right. is what we did. Somebody <laughs> sat and listened to us one day and said, you know, that would be a great radio program. So, and they here and we twisted are. Our,
1: our arms a little. <laughs> um, but, you know, praise God because, you know, we want to serve him. So we saw that it was God's uh, desire of us.
0: But, but, you know, it's not so much that uh, we, cr- uh, contemplative desire to remain hidden, though of course that's, that's the case for many contemplatives. Uh, who sought to hide themselves in desert places. But it is certainly true that we wish our relationship with God to remain hidden. Explain that a little bit. We don't want to, uh, you know, sort of put on airs, I guess, to use, again, the modern vernacular. Uh, Father Haggerty explains this well. He points out that whether in cloisters or on noisy streets, contemplatives themselves remain the hiding place for God. Of course, yeah. I took this right from Elizabeth, as I suspected he. But we want to be another incarnation of Christ. I'm not saying we don't want to evangelize. We do. We want to be models of Christ in the world. Um, we don't necessarily uh, want to be the person, you know, out on a stump or, or um, um, being proactively uh, out um, doing missionary work. We would like to be models of Christ living in the world, and we remain hidden. And this Process deepens with us, I think, year by year. It sort of deepens. Yeah, and we, there's a we continual withdrawal.
1: Yeah, there's that continual draw to go off to a one-on-one with the Lord, you know, grab a moment here, grab a moment there. But yeah, that, that continual longing for the intimate time alone with the alone.
0: Yeah. And I would say, um, this sort of harkens back to an idea that we've expressed many times in our conversation to build that cell within our hearts where we can dwell alone. I happen to know of a woman who I will not name because many in the area know her, um, who is very quiet, very reserved, um, very prayerful. Uh, but I can tell you, I, I just happened to have a conversation with her about a week ago and just standing in this woman's presence and looking into her eyes, you know, you're looking into the eyes of a very holy person. I don't say yeah, I know
1: somebody like that. Yeah, too. So,
0: so you know what I'm talking about? Many of us know these people. Um, she was actually giving me some counsel on something for my son, but, um, and, and I just, I was in awe uh, listening to her, certainly, but just looking into her eyes, you can sense a depth of of spirituality a depth of holiness in these souls that even though they have that and it is evident when you encounter them they're hidden most of the time they're just quiet reserved withdrawn souls
1: and, you know, I, I like how you constantly remind us about building the cell within our own soul, so that we can retreat into that cell within our soul with the Lord, even in the midst of a crowd. You know, Absolutely. that is a great gift that the Lord will give a contemplative soul. But, you know, there's something else about contemplatives. They They have this need always to give more to God. They're not satisfied with the status quo. There's always more to be done. Like I'm always telling Mark, there's always more to talk about, too. <laughs> But, you know, Mark, we're, we need to take a little bit of a break here. And I know we have much more to share about the traits of a contemplative soul that Father Haggerty has pointed out. So um, why don't we take just a little bit of a break and then we'll come back and get into um, even more.
0: Great. A reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Spirituality Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back.
2: King, the saints adore, the angels sing, and fall before the throne of grace. To you belongs the highest praise. These sufferings, this passing time.
0: Welcome back to Carmelite Spirituality Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are uh, continuing our conversation on the aspects of a contemplative, the elements, the characteristics, the uh, personality traits, if you will. Uh, I found this, Francis, a particularly compelling and um, encouraging, comforting, if you will, uh, section of the book because I could see myself in this. Now, many people mm. will say they'll meet me and they'll say, oh, you're, you're one of those, what's the uh, Myers-Briggs type uh, oh, you're one of those outward people. You're one of those, uh, I can't remember the, the, the definition of it now. I'm sure all of our listeners are yelling at their mics saying, yes, I know, Mark. You. <laughs> but what, whatever it is, I, I am not actually by nature that sort of person. I'm actually very withdrawn, very private, very quiet, um, and, and it's much more consistent for me uh, to dwell like he characterizes the contemplate as well. And I think that's true for so many of us in Carmel. It makes you wonder how we have so much fun at our monthly meetings, doesn't it?
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: Oh, goodness gracious. Well, you know, another key aspect often found in the personality of a contemplative is that continual desire for purification. You might yeah. not state that outwardly, but you do know that you need that purification to be... um more pleasing to the Lord.
0: Yeah, and you said it before the break. um, We develop this increasing desire to undergo whatever God might ask of us. And we know as we mature that what he is going to ask of us is that purification, not only for ourselves. And this is very important. We are in karma. We are apostolic contemplatives. We have an apostolic mission, and we live an interior life. And those are not inconsistent. If there's a central theme to this program, which we reiterate so often, that's it, apostolic And contemplative, a deep interior life hidden in and amongst the the, uh, other members of our uh, world. And yet apostolic in the sense that we don't just take on our sufferings and our trials for ourselves. We do it for the world. Father Haggerty points out that Jesus himself suffered three major challenges uh, in, in route to the cross, and that these souls, contemplative souls now, tend to go through very similar experiences. Of
1: course, much less intense, but, much less but, intense, but very right. similar. So you want to point out what those three are? Yeah,
0: first, uh, of course, he became poor. He was stripped of everything. This right. is actually uh, very clearly brought out in the Stations of the Cross, which at your suggestion, Francis, we're going to do a, a conversation on here probably next week. In fact, it's a good time for it. But Christ was stripped of everything. He was forsaken spiritually. How do we know that? Well, very simply, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right. Now, we could go back and forth about um, to what extent Christ knew that he was uttering uh, uh, the 22nd Psalm there. I believe 22nd Psalm. Um, uh, or whether he was actually experiencing this. I don't want to get into that theological discussion. It is very evident that Christ s- experienced a spirituality, uh, I'm sorry, a forsakenness spiritually in the midst of his suffering. That's not really debatable. And finally, he suffered thirst. He says, of course, towards the end of his uh, time on the cross I thirst uh, there is a much deeper theological meaning for that which is uh, his thirst for souls uh, but these are the three things that, that Christ experienced again on the way to the cross and all contemplatives uh, will go through this on some level it's, it, it is to be expected um, in, in fact Francis he, I think Father Haggerty brings this out very well in that very section here
1: okay here we go something akin to a kind of spiritual violence can seem to mark divine actions toward a soul close to God, a contemplative soul. Perhaps we do not acknowledge it so easily for fear of inviting the same into our lives. This violent dimension is eminently spiritual, yet it often involves a person in a loss of health. Or another trial of some lasting magnitude. In all its variations, this violence will involve some crushing of the soul with an awareness of its own insignificance. In this suffering, the soul will come to realize an impotence in itself, an incapacity to free itself on its own. Often no reversal of fortune takes place, no rescue from events, rather, all in a life joins to reinforce a steady reduction of the soul to its nothingness before God. This is the violence of love at work, drawing a soul toward an absolute surrender to divine love. Wow,
0: and, where do I sign up?
1: <laughs> well, you know, Mark, it's interesting. I just had lunch <laughs> with a lady over the weekend, and we... Ended up speaking for quite a long time together. She had much to share, and in the period of eight months, she um, had lost her job, her husband had lost her job, her daughter had a serious uh, health situation, and and there was so much more. I and, and it was all within eight months. And I'm just looking at her. I'm like, oh my goodness. And yet, you know, sh- here she is. She is resilient. She is faithful. She's practicing her faith. She has a wisdom in her uh, that nothing but suffering could gain, in my opinion. And so she uh, is an example of one who lives this, who has lived out and experienced this kind of spiritual violence that leads to a deeper love of Christ.
0: Yeah, these are hard words to understand. I don't mean to minimize them, certainly. We understand, um, listen, there's sin in the world, and therefore there's suffering in the world. Um, We are called to great glory and the path to that glory is a difficult one and a long, uh, arduous road. Um, as I say, hard words, but read the lives of the saints. And we see this playing out over and yes. over and over mm-hmm. again. Of course, our Lord is the very model of this, as we just described, his, his uh, poverty, his spiritual uh, forsakenness, and his thirst. Um, please understand, this violence that uh, Francis just referenced does not have to be a physical violence. It isn't in all cases manifested physically. Frankly, in many cases it can be more challenging if it's psychological. Absolutely. Uh, Indeed, more often than not, it is a psychological or Or, a spiritual.
1: Yeah, spiritual suffering. That's even worse.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the deepest uh, suffering any human can experience, actually, ironically, is not the external. We know there's a limit to the external. I mean, Mm -hmm. eventually the body will expire. It's the interior suffering. John of the Cross makes it very clear in the fourth stage of his four stages of development of prayer Uh, he talks about the um, dark night of the spirit which is purely interior purification and we can be lost in it Uh, lost i mean in the sense of confusion um, we are unclear as to why certain things are happening, um, what the Lord is bringing about. I've uttered these words myself. I know, I can tell you. In fact, I jokingly, I said what I said only because my wife so often says to me, why would you ask for this stuff? You know? <laughs> why would you pray that God bring this to you?
1: No, we just say, thy will be done, that's all. <laughs> exactly, and
0: that's what we're left with. At the end of the day, that is the only prayer that matters. Thy will be done. That is the greatest prayer we can utter. It's actually, I would argue, uh in in a vocal sense the the greatest prayer that we can utter silence is ultimately the great prayer that we utter but hidden where others cannot see we suffer that's the interior hidden where others cannot see and that's why so often the saints will fail or simply give up at their attempts uh, to describe good spiritual directors will will tell their um uh, the, the people they counsel Uh, stop analyzing, don't look to uncover, don't search for meaning. We are too limited in our capacity to understand this depth of love, and I characterize it that way very intentionally uh, because that's what it is, but we will not be able to reconcile it with our limited intellectual capacity. All we can do is say, utter the words, thy will be done, and then enter into silence. This is
1: such a purification of, of the faith. Life. And it's such an important part of growing in union with the Lord is a pure faith because the pure of heart shall see God.
0: You know, honestly, Francis, as I reread this section, I had to say to myself, what a wonderfully accurate description of a contemplative Carmelite soul. This is what the life that we are called to is about. Father Haggerty speaks here about a desire to be alone. We mentioned that. And even a feeling out of place in a crowd, I've experienced this myself, I suspect you have, Mm -hmm. it seems more of these souls would simply rather hide beneath the gaze of God than to have to put up with the veneer image that is required for us to put on in public. Isn't that so true? Mm -hmm. We are told by modern psychology, and not so modern, I mean, it's uh, been well known for some time, we all live with a veneer. We all live with multiple faces that we put on and we take off and we present and they have... You know, a a benefit in allowing us to function in the different environments that we find ourselves in. But a contemplative soul really wants to be done with it all, wants to be hidden, wants to remain below the gaze of God.
1: And it's so funny. um, You know, we think about um, how to recognize these contemplative souls. And it's not always easy, but one of the marks is that the contemplative the contemplative soul, um, they consistently lose interest in everything that's not God. It is not so much that they lose interest for everything in the world, but rather they lose interest in anything that has to do with them. And, And having... Watched you enter Carmel and watched you grow, Mark, and, and so many others that came into Carmel after I came in. I could see this growing in each of them that, you know, they lose desire in certain things that the world attaches a lot of, uh, power and influence to and, then they have this desire just to please god more and more so they lose the desire to please themselves and they become more god and other oriented and i've seen that with so many souls and it's just a confirmation of that call to the contemplative life
0: yeah and it's not that everything goes right we've talked about detachment right. no. before it's not as though we say well everything has to go now all my friendships all my entertainments all of you know much of it does let's be honest let's it's, be let's be objective it, the, about in, it
1: inordinate attachment is exactly. what's left what,
0: what happens with the rest of it is it has to be perfected right. it has to be brought up to uh, uh, contributing to, uh, uh, our relationship and leading us deeper into that relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, St. Paul said, um, in effect, I'll use the, you know a sort of um, modern version of it, but basically, I really don't have time for anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified.
1: And it seems like God's always part of your conversation, and if not outwardly, <laughs> always inwardly, yeah. um, because your mind is more preoccupied about the Lord.
0: That's it. Your mind has been... We take every thought captive, right? Right, right from Scripture. And, and so those things that distract us, that, that, that set us off course, we dispense with. The rest of it remains, but it must be purified. If it doesn't lead us to Christ, we probably get rid of it.
1: And of course, Mark and I are not perfected in this by any means, but we're on the road and we do see the signs and we see the signs in others around us having been in the... Um, secular Order of discus Carmelites for a number of years. Um, so uh, we can start to see this playing out more. You know, one other thing about true contemplatives is that they seem to develop a keen sense of perception about people and things. Would you want to go into that a little well, bit? Well, yeah,
0: more? I think this is just what we're discussing, how we begin to get a larger uh, perspective. You know, um, I oftentimes play the scenario, if you will, with anything in my life. I run it to its full course and I say, well, what if I had that interest and it consumes my time? What's the end? Where is it taking me? Mm-hmm. This is actually the gift of knowledge and understanding. It's a spiritual a gift from the Holy Spirit. Um, beginning to be able to see theological truths in a deeper way, mm-hmm. but also beginning to put the... Uh, aspects of our life in proper order we begin to see how things are either in fact contributing to our spiritual life or detracting from it and we gain a deeper perception we come to realize that really and truly there is nothing in our life that matters other than jesus christ Period. End of discussion. So if things aren't leading us along that path, and I hear people, I'm sure, uh, listening to us, Francis, going, well, do you mean that I have to, you know, get rid of this because it doesn't bring me to church, or I have to get rid of that because it doesn't lead me to prayer? And in some small way, yes, I'm saying if your relationships, if your entertainments, if your uh, financial uh, motivations are not leading you back to Christ, you need to reconsider them. And don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Do it in prayer, do it with the guidance of the Holy Spirit.
1: And, and spiritual friendships as well, yeah. I would say. You know, the true contemptive, true contemplative people, when you're talking to them, they seem to get to the heart of the matter rather quickly, no matter what the situation is around them. And I think that probably stems from their ability to learn to wait in prayer and then to look for God acting in that situation to discover what is below the surface. Um, This is, of course, a firm prerequisite for St. John the Cross when it comes to capable spiritual directors. And and I'm sure, Mark, um, you and I both have these opportunities to do spiritual direction. And, uh, you know, we see how the Holy Spirit is working through us in these lives, but, you know, having uh, practiced A um, contemplative prayer stance and trying to live a contemplative life I think accents this for us and and the gift, the charism from St. Elijah carries forth, you know
0: Yeah, I I remember early on in my Walk in Carmel, and of course, like you, I have an affinity to the literature and I like reading, I make time for reading, I do my studying Um, and and early on even I thought, oh gee, I, I think I'd like to do spiritual direction, I think I'm called to that and I read in a text somewhere about how we are responsible for our spiritual direction, and then I read what John said for about their souls, it. right? For their souls, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's
1: a big burden to carry.
0: And then I read what John said about it, and he said, listen, the, the criteria, the only criteria uh, for uh, effective spiritual direction is experience. He didn't mean by that, uh, you know, academic degrees and uh, right. and age and so on and so forth. I mean, we can look to Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, uh, St. Therese of Lisieux, of course, both of whom died in their early 20s, yet profound teachers of uh, of theology and of this teaching. Uh, Therese, of course, a doctor of the church today. Um, yet they were not highly educated. They were not um, uh, full of, of, you know, worldly wisdom. They weren't old, um, but they had experience in the spiritual sense. They'd suffered. They'd right. gone through trial. They'd learned to endure. And they, they pondered. they with faith. And they evaluated, um, you know, not, again, analyzing the problem, but evaluated, what is God doing? What is God um, yeah. showing me through this experience? Yeah, they,
1: and they, of course, prayed. Yeah. And that, that is huge. And, and just a minute ago, I said something about, you know, the burden of being responsible for souls. But at the same time, it, it's a drive to save souls, um, to help souls. And so... Uh, you want to be accurate. You want to be in the Lord. You, you know that if you're steering them off the path, you know um, how... Uh, how detrimental that can be to them and and how you're responsible for that. So it's very, very important here. Yeah,
0: St. Teresa, of course, uh, uh, again, the great example of this, she received a a great deal of bad spiritual direction early on, and it led her to a discipline of understanding how it is that she should guide souls, and, of course, to to the great works that she's gifted us with. Uh, These souls also, ironically, are marked by silence uh, when it comes to speaking about God. Uh, You and I being exceptions, apparently, friends, as we do this every week
1: we have a different um, gift
0: but, but they they seem reluctant uh almost to engage in discussion about their prayer or even less so about their relationship but mark you're God. like
1: that you don't. I mean we when we get to the nitty-gritty of our interior prayer I mean the, I think that is still a very um guarded place with all contemplatives so well, you know we I, do talk a lot about it and we live the life but to get into those intimate details I think that is still you know
0: yeah very uh, guarded I, I, in our hearts I, I think here of soldiers you you know, if you listen to uh, stories about or specifically from uh, soldiers, they they are often very reluctant to relate their experiences. Right? right? Not entirely because of the things they may personally have done. But, you know, these difficult things that we go through in in spiritual warfare, we don't necessarily want to reflect back on them. And we may not be all that pleased with, um, you know, the inevitable consequences of our falls. So um, I'll be honest with you. When I hear somebody who is very willing to just, you know, elaborate on all their spiritual experiences, I'm I'm somewhat put off. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I, I, you know, uh, my own experience, as much as you relate, uh, one of uh, more withdrawal. There are a few intimate relationships uh, that I have, people I'm confident sharing with, but I think it is a mark, back to Father Haggerty's book, a mark of the contemplative characteristic trait, if you will, of the contemplative, that they are somewhat withdrawn.
1: Well, you know, in the Bible verse found in John one thirty-eight, what are you looking for? We hear the refrain that echoes in the heart of every contemplative. They're the words spoken to Andrew, but they come from lips of the Lord. And they're really the question that will linger in our mind until we go to meet the Lord. We consider, continue to ask, what are we looking for? What are you looking for? We hear that spoken to us.
0: Yeah, And Father Haggerty, again, reiterates the importance of silence. He says, this question can only be responded to. In other words, we can only receive its answer in our Silence. The last clear mark of the contemplative is a desire to intercede in that silence for others. Uh, This seems to be a mark of a truly holy or heavenly soul. As we know, souls in heaven intercede continuously for all of us. Um, Scripture tells us this, of course. Another angel, and I'm reading directly from Revelations 8, 3 through 4. Three and four, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. So we know that the greatest mark of the contemplative is prayer. It is, it is silence and it is intercessory prayer. It is a desire for this encounter with the living God. Um, certainly, the aspects that we've discussed about withdrawal and a desire to remain under his gaze are true, but we don't do this just for ourselves. We do it for the world.
1: And this reminds me of St. Therese when she finally took this prayer, draw me. And every time she would pray, draw me, it was to draw all the souls that she was praying for, all those that she loved, and the list went on and on. But just the simple draw me, and it's always um, concerned about the other souls.
0: You know, probably the best uh, way to synopsize this particular section of the book, which again, as I say, I found most uh, comforting, was the section on contemplatives describing the nature and and characteristics of a contemplative, um, is this section here. I have seen that all perfection has an end, but your commands are boundless. This is from Psalm 119, verse 96. And then Father Haggerty adds on to that. A clear tension is implicit in these words, a true contemplative challenge. There is a limited capacity within the soul for love. We can never love to infinitude. And yet God seems never to rest long in provoking within a soul the need to go further in love. The demands of love are indeed boundless and never diminish in intensity as long as the soul continues to offer itself to divine love. And that's Francis's uh, counsel a little bit earlier in our conversation, abandoning ourselves to this experience, giving ourselves over, continuously experiencing.
1: So Mark, Mark, I just want to just kind of list all these attributes of a contemplative soul. uh, One right after the another, just to kind of get a a, a synopsis here. Uh, The desire to remain hidden, the desire to always give more to God, the desire for purification, intense, an, an intense passion for God, like Christ, to follow Him in suffering on the cross, to um, lose desire to please self and only please God. So, loses interest in everything that is not God. Um, a keen sense of perception. Uh, marked by silence, uh, a great hunger and longing for God and a desire to intercede for others. So lots of traits of a contemplative soul.
0: You know, I don't think there's a better way to conclude our conversation on the book Contemplative Provocations by Father Haggerty than to turn to uh, the same place he does to conclude his book, and that's St. John of the Cross. So let me read this concluding a piece from St. John of the Cross. Let those then who are singularly active, who think that they can win the world with their preaching and exterior works, observe here that they would profit the church and please God much more, not to mention the good example they would give, were they to spend at least half of this time with God in prayer. Without prayer, they would do a great deal of hammering, but accomplish little and sometimes nothing and even at times cause harm. God forbid that the salt should begin to lose its savor. For however much they may appear to achieve externally, they will in substance be accomplishing nothing. It is beyond doubt that good works can be performed only by the power of God. That's the contemplative soul, and I think that's a great way to conclude uh, our conversation. A reminder, Contemplative Provocations by Father Donald Haggerty, a wonderful uh, book, and I encourage you to uh, get a copy of it. I I do want to just take a quick moment, if I can, Francis, to remind our listeners about the Upcoming pilgrimage to Quebec. Yeah, uh, exciting. Leaving September 29th. We'll be arriving uh, in Montreal on the 29th, the Feast of the Holy Angels. Uh, we'll be visiting a number of sites in Montreal, including Notre Dame and the the Oratory, St. Joseph's Oratory. We'll then go to uh, Quebec City. Uh, We'll we'll visit another cathedral named Notre Dame. We'll visit the Shrine of St. Therese of Lisieux in Canada, which many people uh, may not be familiar with, but um, a beautiful, uh, simple little chapel consistent with uh, St. Therese. And we'll go through the Holy Door at Notre Dame in Quebec. And finally, we'll visit St. Anne de Beaupré just outside of Quebec uh, and return on October the 4th. If you're interested in looking into this, please go to our website, Carmelite. Uh, dot conver- I'm sorry, And in the upper middle portion, you'll see a link that'll give you all the details.
1: And Mark is going to give a couple conferences on that pilgrimage. So I know everyone who goes will have a very uh, contemplative pilgrimage. And uh, what a great opportunity to walk through the holy door in this Jubilee year of mercy. So next week we'll be talking about the Way of the Cross, right? Yes. Okay, wonderful. There is a great book called The Way of the Cross with the Carmelite Saints by the ICS Publications. We'll be using that uh, as part of our major reference. Um, But to conclude our conversation on um, contemplative souls and contemplative provocations, I'd like to use this uh, prayer that was found in the letters from Elizabeth of the Trinity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My God deign to invade all the faculties of my soul. Grant that everything within me may become divine and marked with your seal, so that I may be another Christ working for your glory. Lord, how I long to labor for your glory. I long to give myself entirely to you, to be pervaded by your divine life. Be the life of my life, the soul of my soul, and grant that I may always remain under the influence of your divine action. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Well,
0: a reminder: you've been listening to Carmelite spirituality conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home, until we're with you again next week. God bless.